You know, when I was setting up this interview, I never imagined I'd hear the line. He was brutally honest with us and he was just like, I only employ about two bona fide straight up and down writers. He's like, I have to employ a woman because the studio makes me. That's a real bummer. And the bad news when looking behind the scenes doesn't stop there. Certainly didn't for this interview. So get ready to hear all that and more. Otherwise, welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Tiana Jackson, Hollywood talent agent, CEO of her own boutique talent agency, as well as having made history by becoming the first black woman elected to the Association of Talent Agents Board of Directors. Tiana has been featured in major publications such as the New York Times, TMZ, Fox, and Essence. Don't let the bummer at the top of this fool you. It was a lot of fun to do this interview. There just is a lot of problems, and I think we hear about them from one side or the other, depending on you know where you hear most things from. So I'd like to get a more broad perspective. And for now, I think this is a good introduction into, you know, Hollywood and getting agents and everything that goes into it. So hopefully I'll get more down the road and we can expand on this. Now, let's see why no one ever makes it in Hollywood. Welcome to the show, Tiana Jackson. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much for coming on the show. Why don't you give a little introduction to the audience about who you are and what you do? My name is Tiana Jackson. I'm a talent and literary agent in Los Angeles. I started my agency in 2014. It's built entirely from the ground up. I was a victim of the barriers to entry in Hollywood. So in spite of graduating UCLA and Chapman, I still was unable to gain entry-level employment. So I had to start my own agency. Over the past seven years, I've been in the New York Times, TMZ, Fox Soul, I've been in Essence Magazine, and I made history becoming the first Black woman elected to the Association of Talent Agents Board of Directors. Congratulations on that. That is a very large accomplishment. Thank you. So let's start just with the most basic thing. What is an agent? The easiest way to describe an agent is, is much like describing the relationship between a home buyer or home seller and a realtor. An agent exists to procure employment, negotiate contracts, be there in case there's some sort of issue on set. That's really what our focus is. We're not supposed to be your therapists, you know, we're not supposed to deal with some of the things that we deal with, but it is kind of an all-encompassing um, talent wrangler, if you will. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm very familiar with, you know, the, the Hollywood version that you see on movies where they're like, sunglasses on the beach with the Bluetooth in and they're like, what is it? What can I get for you? I got this sweet job lined up. Uh, I would say that's probably like only the owners of those agencies. It's definitely <laughs> not the employees. <laughs> yeah, that's probably fair. It's a little less glamorous to see people working indoors. It's extremely less glamorous, especially the boutique lifestyle, because we only get 10% of the talent's income. And so on average, commercials only pay $500 non-union for unknown talent. That's $50. So it's definitely not enough for me to be on the beach with sunglasses chilling. Yeah. And I mean, $50, how much work goes into like getting someone just a simple spot? 
It's very tedious, very arduous. We can do an average of 1,000 submissions per year for a client and maybe get one audition, sometimes no auditions. I've had clients where we've worked diligently for them for two years and finally got some auditions and they immediately booked because they stayed prepared and ready. Yeah. Wow. That is a lot of work for, you know, I'm sure it means a lot to the people that you represent. It's just, I have to imagine hard to think like, yeah, you know, we're working really hard to try and get you something and we're just not getting anything back. Yeah. It's, you know, it's very competitive, right? Everybody wants to be a star. So casting directors receive about 5,000 submissions for every role that they put out. Wow. Yeah. That is a a lot of competition, I would say. (laughs) And yeah, you're right. Everyone's like, I'm going to go to Hollywood and be a star. And it's like, you're just adding now you're 5,001. Yeah. It was 3000 when I started in 2014. Wow. So that is a lot of growth over what? Nine years. Yeah. (laughs) You're talking almost doubled. Yeah. That is insane. So what got you started into all this? Like what was the start of your journey to becoming uh, involved at all in the agent lifestyle? Yeah, um, as a kid, I always followed entertainment, um, started writing my first scripts and everything in high school and college, um, went to a school that didn't have a film program. So I did broadcast journalism at first, ended up transferring to Chapman and finished out there and just stuck with communications because I actually enjoyed it. I was doing uh, papers about the media and analysis and uh, demographics and all of those things. So I actually enjoyed that a bit more, but still stayed creative. Um, like most in Hollywood, you're working job to job. It's much like construction. You're constantly looking for your next gig. It's very hard to break in. You had to start out as a PA. We were filming on film back then. So it was even harder. You couldn't even get a project made if you didn't have at least $10,000 to buy the film. And so, um, in my thirties, I was producing a project and two of the actresses that I cast, I had overheard them speaking about how they were having trouble finding representation. And I'm like, it's been like 10, 15 years at this point. Like, how have we not progressed? So I went and took an internship at a talent agency only to find that that owner was racist and ended up quitting and launching my own. And we're turning eight in August. So it was really a journey of necessity. There really aren't that many black owned agencies. There really aren't that many black agents. And that's part of um, what I focus on now inside of the ATA is trying to help them diversify their talent pools. There are some agencies that want to, you know, have change and have their workforce reflect the population, but there are others that are still, you know, not as open to progressive change. Yeah, it seems, I mean, crazy to hear, uh, it's not, it's unfortunately not unusual to hear these kind of stories, but it just seems really surprising that like, well, I'm not going to represent this person you know, based on any level of bias, because it's like, this is your job. This is your income. Why would you just be turning people away? Yeah, I call it the Noah's Ark approach. That's kind of what what they've been doing in the past. Two Black people, two Chinese people, two Mexicans. That was about it, right? (laughs) So, um, you know, some things have changed. Obviously, producers have asked for more diversity, but we still haven't cast a wider net, meaning we're focusing on these mega agencies with the big names and the big stars. And we have boutiques such as mine that have really talented people, but they need an opportunity to audition for some of these bigger projects. A lot of times we don't even receive those bigger projects. They're exclusively being cast at those bigger agencies. So we're being kept out altogether. Gotcha. Has that 
changed any as things are starting to go direct to streaming and they have, you know, a lot of smaller projects or is it still just kind of everyone's blocked in? So I'll admit, I naively thought, you know, when Netflix at first came on the scene and then Amazon came, I was like, great, there'll be more opportunities for us. But no, you know, for their ROI, they still want the bigger names, the bigger draw. So if you start looking at the catalog of Netflix, you're seeing it's it's all A-listers, all big names at this point. If they're smaller projects, they've probably been acquired through what we call acquisitions for distribution. So still finding that it is an extreme uphill battle to get a lot of our new talent um, started and get these opportunities. Because in addition to representing actors, I also represent writers and producers and their production companies. So I'm shopping what we call IP, which is intellectual property, AKA scripts, docu-series, unscripted TV series. And so it's the same boat. We can go through and I can have a project that's great and they'll still say, you know, we need a bigger name attached. Yeah, I know. Uh... I had worked with someone at one point that worked with a lot of law Hollywood, like script writing. And they had said, like, if you can't get a big name attached to a project, it is almost impossible to sell. Is that true? It is. But I can also tell you, even when I do have big names attached, it's still impossible to sell. I had a feature film that had several names attached, including a very worthy director who's in residence at a studio and we still could not get the green light. So even then, it's still an uphill battle. Is it just like a time management thing or are they like, why is it so hard to get these projects picked up? I look at it from the perspective of job security, right? If you're a development executive, your job kind of is to say no. You get, you know, we send out so much material, so many materials that there's not a shortage of ideas. It's just a, do you want to risk your job for this project is the way I look at it. Because think about it, it's a 50-50 chance. Either the project's a hit and you're the big superstar now at the office or the project's a flop and then they're going back down the chain of command saying, who greenlit this? Whose idea was this? And so I think to defend them in a way, it is a risk. It's a risk when you're taking these projects out, even if it's got a name attached, because you've seen shows with big names where they've just been a flop. People just did not resonate and respond to them. And if advertisers aren't buying up space, then the show's definitely not going to stay on the air because that's really its whole purpose. Um, I think, was it 30 Rock? Somebody would make that joke about that. Actually, yeah, it was Adam Baldwin's character on 30 Rock where he was saying that the variety show really didn't matter. It was really about the ads that really what we're coming to watch are the ads the show itself was just filler. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's an honest way of looking at it. I've heard that show was actually very accurate from a lot of the jokes they made was like an insider view. They're like, yeah, that's pretty accurate actually. Yeah. You know, it's the perspective I think that everyone looks through is I'm like, if I wrote 10 books tomorrow, all on different genres, I would just throw all of them out there because what do I have to lose? I already put in the effort to do the work all I can do is gain money. Right. Whereas looking at this, it's like, yeah, you can, you have to what buy it and then start producing it. You have to pick up all kinds of staff. I, I don't know, even understand how much money goes into something before it ever sees the light of day. But there's a lot of things from what I understand that have like the project starts, they start spending money and then they like run out of money and it never finishes. Correct. Yeah, on average, about $2 million. Wow. That is a, a very large price tag for somebody to be like, eh, it just didn't go anywhere. 
Yeah, for a studio, you know, it's two dollars, right? Sure. <laughs> a billion, multi-billion dollar studio. There's like, oh, it's two million. Write that off. Um, yeah, the, there's a lot of money that's involved, and then you have labor unions and guilds involved. So there's additional money that has to be put up for pension, health, and welfare. There's just a lot of things that go into it from a producer's perspective that people don't understand. Yeah. So when someone goes looking for an agent and they come to you, what is like? What should they be looking for? in their agent? Um, I'll start with this. Do not seek out an agent if you have never worked in this industry before. Okay. I get a lot of people where I wrote a script during the pandemic and now I need an agent. And it's like, that's not how this works. I, I use the analogy of the NBA. You cannot wake up today and just say, put me on the Lakers. I'm ready to be a professional basketball player. And it's the same thing with seeking out representation. If you look at a lot of these people, they are extremely talented. They've been working for a very long time. They understand the ins and outs of the business, you know, how to show up, how to prepare, how to do the work. A lot of people are ill-equipped for that. And they think that it's just as simple as, oh, well, I watched, um, I used to get emails all the time from people in Georgia when Georgia first started doing production with all the Marvel movies. People were background on those, which is a movie extra. It's a long day on set, but it's nowhere near six months to a year of training for eight hours a day, doing wire works, you know, having a personal trainer, having your diet picked out for you and all these things that these actors have had to do for discipline. And so when you're showing up on set, you don't know about those months or in some cases years of work that these actors had to put in to be able to perform some of these stunts that they're performing. And people make the misconception of, oh, well, they just stand around and they say action and then they just jump off this box. Like, I can do that. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's no different from when clients have like a Nike commercial and Nike will surprise them and put a treadmill right there in the audition room and say, you, you say you're a marathon runner, prove it. Run on this treadmill as fast as you can for five minutes. It's going to weed out a lot of people who tend to unfortunately lie about their skill sets. So I say all that to say you may want a Hollywood career, but I would suggest working on your craft, booking lots of projects, waiting a few years before you seek out representation. With that, what I'm normally looking for is someone who's well-trained, a triple threat, if you will, that still matters. What we mean is, you know, singing, dancing, okay, in addition to their acting. Um, now, because of content creation, if you're a writer, director as well, that's even better. We've shifted gears to looking for content creators just because I can see where things are going and the partnerships that we have with various places. Um, you've got to be able to be someone who can churn out ideas regularly, quickly, and they've got to be good and they've got to be filmed with great quality, great lighting, great sound. You know, you've got to be this little filmmaker now um, with the way things have gone digitally. And a lot of that was uh, sped up by the pandemic and the success of TikTok. Yeah. Do you think it has helped people gain more skills or do you think it has just kind of muddied the field with too many people? It's hard because obviously our population has like almost tripled, you know, since this industry started. Um, so it's hard to say. I think what did affect certain people's um, ideology was the birth of unscripted programming and showing how you could be a housewife, for instance, and now be a multimillionaire. And so there are some people who think, okay, that's a viable way, you know, for things to happen. But again, just like with the 1% that we have in every industry, it's the same thing in entertainment. Not everybody is out here being a multimillionaire. That's why I always make a point of saying, hey, you know, that commercial that you're watching on TV right now, odds are the majority of those actors who you don't know who they are, they only receive $500 being in that commercial. Yeah, it is definitely like, you know, mega hit stars are 
very few and far between. And the amount of work that they put into it, I'm sure is also like just not even recognized by the general public because I've had people ask like, Oh, how hard is it to do the show? Like you just talk into a mic and then you hit send and it's on the internet. It's like, well, no, I have to set up an interview. You and I communicated before all that. We had a scheduling thing. Then like we got here, had to talk. We're doing the interview after this. I will edit it, then go through and post like, and then promote it. And it's like that, that takes significantly more than just talking into a microphone, which is what I thought when I started. Yeah. And I used to do a podcast back in the day. It was called black and a Jew. And our tagline literally was we aim to offend and we started to get popular um, in the lesbian community and made Curve Magazine. And I think people don't understand just how hard it is to talk to yourself, you know, not to mention another person and try to keep things lively and keep the conversation going. It's, it's not that easy, especially when you're recording your intro, like you said, or even an outro, and it's just you and you're hearing yourself and then you get tongue tied and all these things, you know, so it's just not as easy as you guys think, but I recommend trying it out. That's the only way you're going to have that experience for yourself. Yeah, I think it's a blast. Um, I always tell people to just try it. I'm like, it's not an expensive setup. You can, anyone can do it. Um, but it makes me think of all the people who are like putting in a lot of time and effort and like learning the craft, you know, even just to put out like their TikTok channel. Because there's people that are probably like very expensive cameras, lighting systems, they've got microphones, they have a whole setup just to do, you know, like the 15 seconds you saw. Exactly. It's definitely gotten better with some of the apps. I see them advertising as well. They've got some cool little things to, you know, stitch certain things and do things that make it a little bit easier than definitely it was years ago. Yeah. Um, Do you see a lot of people kind of start learning there and then maybe go and take classes and eventually like they come into you and they're like, I do have this experience and it was, you know, all of this patchwork kind of experience, but I have it. Um. Yeah, there are some of them that do that and they might have, you know, 100,000 followers or something. Um, I can't jump on those just because we do deal with what we call theatrical, which is film and television. And I need them to know how to stand on a mark. I need them to know what an eye line is, a call time is, you know, how to read a call sheet. And those are things that are definitely not involved when you're reporting for YouTube or TikTok. So um, sometimes it's in reverse. The person might have been a musical theater major. And then they got into the social media route because they saw that it was a viable route for them to be able to showcase their skill set. That's the thing with entertainment. There's just so many pathways to entry. Um, You can even use what 50 Cent has done with some of his shows where he's taken the sons of some of these people and put them in acting school for a year. And I can understand that approach because he probably wanted someone who was a bit more authentic, right? Non-actors in some ways make the best actors. Um, you know, actors when they're very well trained or very rehearsed, very nuanced, and it, it can be very cookie cutter and robotic. And sometimes it may not lend the, you know, breath of fresh air that the writer intended for this character to portray. Um, anybody can be an actor. That's the thing. You know, it's not hard. Um, but there are times where it'll be challenging for you emotionally. Not everyone can cry on cue. Not, every, not everyone can convincingly scream, right? Not everyone can convey emotions with just their eyes. And so there are some things, you know, that are a bit more involved than just showing up and, you know, reading a piece of paper, scene by scene, take by take. Right. Yeah. And I think that takes a lot of introspection. Like you have to be pretty comfortable with yourself to be like, you know what? I can't do these things because a lot of people are like, sure, I could probably cry if they put me on camera. 
And it's like, yeah, but you're not just like sitting in a room on a camera trying to make yourself cry. You're standing in front of 50 people who need you to do it right now. And I'm like, not, not only do I have a face for radio, but like, also I can't cry. I can't scream. Like I can't, I couldn't do any of those things. So if I had to look at it, I'm like, wow, I don't fit for any of that. It's a good thing. I don't have to do it because I would never make it. You are the only person I've ever encountered that makes that joke. I make that joke all the time when people are like, oh, you have such a nice voice. I'm like, yeah, I have a face for radio. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, $50,000 a minute is what we're burning, folks. So we don't have time for you to try to cry. We need you to be crying. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, it's now or not at all. And if it's not at all, you need to get out of here entirely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that is hard. Um, so getting back to what we were talking about with being an agent, you represent, like you said, several different types of agent. You're like, there's an agent, you know, for acting, there's an agent for writing and all the different kinds of writing that go along with that. Uh, is that fairly common? Yeah. You, you typically have like a niche, you know, like I said, we had to start and I had to find different ways to move. And so that required me to kind of get a primer and everything. So we have a dedicated voiceover division. We have our actors division. We have the television and film writers. I don't deal with books. And so a lot of times there's, there's that misconception when you say you're a literary agent, people want to send you their books. And I'm not a book agent. I'm a script agent. Um, and then we even have a music sync licensing division for our composers. And then some of our actors who are crossovers, meaning, you know, they're musicians as well. So we have them and we have their music on file and trying to get them placed in television shows and movies. We have a few composers that have composed. Um, one of my composers just did the Zola movie. So we, um, we're that anomaly in that sense where we can kind of navigate multiple uh, places just single singularly as ourselves. So like pretty much all of my agents, we all kind of know how to do everything. But yeah, that's not the norm when you're working at another agency. You might just be a commercial agent. You might just be a theatrical, again, which is film and TV, or you could do theater, stage, musical theater. They have that. Um, then there are agents that are for cinematographers, the camera uh, men and women, right? Um, there are cinematographers uh, who specialize in, you know, green screen versus live action. So even then you dive into the minutia of people's skill sets and kind of being well-versed in one particular area. I hate using the word expert, you know, because we can all make mistakes, but that's kind of the closest word to you kind of have your, your expertise. Yeah. It was one of those things I had wondered, cause I'm like, does it just fall into this? Like, oh, I am an agent for actors and it's like does that include voice actors or is voice actors an entirely different agent or you know like and from what i'm hearing it is quite a lot of agents that make up multiple disciplines yeah there yes there are several i would say there's probably about a hundred thousand agents minimum worldwide you're dealing with the bigger agencies the hedge fund agencies employ at least a thousand you know, in California, there's over 1,500 licensed agencies, and that's just one company holding a license for however many agents are inside of it. So that takes us back to that 5,000 submissions. That's where all that's coming from is all of us fighting, trying to turn in headshots for the clients that match the character description. Um, voiceover, yes, is a separate entity. Sometimes agencies will have a booth physically in their office, and the clients will come in and tape their auditions that we're sending out to studios and networks. Wow. That's, I mean, very involved to like set up a recording 
section in your office space where you're like, yep, come in. There's a recording studio inside of our agency that we will send things out from. Yeah. So do people, when they, they find the agent that they need, uh, do they generally like pay a flat fee? And then there is like, you know, whatever, whenever they get work, you get a portion of that, or is it just a flat portion whenever they actually work? It depends on where you're located. So there are some agencies in other states that charge like a registration fee because there's software that we use that costs several thousand dollars to have annually to help us do what we do. And so they offset some of those by charging those fees. Those fees could range from $50 to $250. It just depends on um, what that overhead is looking like for that particular agency. And then from there, traditionally, it's been um, commission only. But like I've mentioned, there's no surviving off of $50 or even $12.50 in some instances because one of the unions allows for this ultra low budget tier. So there's payment tiers based on the budget of the production and also in terms of how actors get paid and even crew gets paid. They have certain payment tiers like tier zero inside of IATSE, which is the labor union for all of the crew, the various locals. They have certain tiers of, okay, this movie is a tier zero. So this is going to be our daily rate. So a lot of stuff is already, um, you know, pre-planned and and set up. And then you still also have non-union projects, which are not under any guild or labor union's jurisdiction. So then they have their own way of paying and doing things as well. And do you have a preference, like when you, you have your client and you're like, this is a union job versus a non-union, you know, involved job. Do you generally say like, this is the better one to work on? Um, it's hard because typically in most cases, with the exception of the 125, I mentioned union tends to pay more. Um, the easiest way to describe it is most of the time it's double uh, what will be the kind of minimum wage in uh, we'll use California as an example. So the problem is, is that there's more non-union work than there is union work. There's, um, you know, a lot of things, like I mentioned earlier, pension, health and welfare. Um, there's just a lot of money that has to go into some of these bank accounts already just to even sign on as a signatory with your production company. So it can be more expensive, but depending on where you're filming, sometimes it's e- easier to kiss the ring and pay that rather than to have them strike and mess up your production because they'll try and do that too when you have a certain budget. If they find out that you've got a million dollar budget and you're shooting in what's called the 30 mile zone, which is TMZ, um, they'll send some delegates to try to, you know, force you to sign under their jurisdiction. Wow. Interesting. It's very like a mob controlled territory. (laughs) Unfortunately. So one of the things that we had started out talking about was, you know, people not being able to find representation and i wanted to kind of get a little deeper into that and see you know just if you have like a a general stance on where things are and where what you'd like to see changed Mm -hmm. um right now the way i see it is you know diversity equity inclusion still has a long way to go and this is someone me who speaks or attempts to speak with those executives at those studios i'm often ignored Um, often placated or just flat out lied to. And um, yeah, we're seeing, you know, differences in some of the shows. But again, those people are coming from those bigger agencies who are just, they've been around 100 years. And so they're deeply embedded in some of these studio systems. So they have advantages that you and I wouldn't have when it comes to getting our clients working. Um, And a lot of that's because they 
also produce those projects. <laughs> the agencies figured out not only will we represent the studios, we will produce the projects, split the cost of the budget, and make 3% on the back end being executive producers of it, and tell our clients we don't need to charge them the 10% because we're making far more being the producers of the project than we would just being the agent. So there's a lot that goes into it um, in that space. Um, ideally, where I would like to see things go is for people to speak up and speak out. You know, we're going through a situation right now where a casting director has been caught red-handed making some damning statements that really center around what his interpretations of beauty are. And in front of a Black British woman, he said that the real hot bees are blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and only give these bees one take because the real hot bees are coming in tomorrow for a diamond commercial. We just can't have that type of stuff still existing in 2022. And I spoke out publicly about it. I've supported the actress. She's not my client. I've been working with the casting directors. I got one of them to release a generic statement, which is better than nothing, you know. But there are a lot of people who are still afraid to speak out, you know, and a lot of people, trolls, like I had this um, alleged agent call my office and tell me that I was a vile, disgusting, dangerous person because I had spoken out about this and that that was her friend. And he's allowed to call people bees. He's allowed to do this. He's allowed to do that. And so we still have a long way to go is the long and the short of it. Yeah. And that's I mean, very unfortunate. Extremely. Um, you know, it's hard enough. We all have to pay our bills. You know what I'm saying? It's hard enough just trying to make it. You're existing during inflation. You're existing, especially in the entertainment industry where actors are, in some instances, forced to pay $25 a month just to be on a casting site so that we can submit them. You know, so it's very challenging. They're working two or three jobs, not only to pay their bills and survive in Los Angeles, where the rent is skyrocketing. The average price of a studio apartment now is $2,500. And then on top of that, you go into a session with a casting director and they're telling you that you're ugly, but they're the ones that called you in. It just doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Like, did you call me in just to have this conversation? That. Um, and I can see, you know, why it would be so hard to speak out because, you know, as you said, like the entire industry has just a bit of nepotism in it where like, you know, everyone is doing the favors for their friends or for their own, you know, accounting on the end. And so to like stand up and try and say like, this is really messed up and we shouldn't be dealing with this is hard because if it doesn't work or no one listens to you, like you kind of just burned your only bridge, mm -hmm. you know, like not only did you not succeed, like now you're, you're basically guaranteed to not get called in for anything because everyone's just holding this like, oh, well, they're going to they're going to try and make something out of whatever I say when they come in next. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a saying, you know, always do what your pocket can handle. So for me, you know, having been kept out of this industry and doing my own thing, I'm used to just being out here, being an island and moving in the ways that I move. But, you know, I look at it like this. I had a client who, when they started going after Harvey Weinstein, she told me that she was one of his victims, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And she told me what had happened. She had reported it to the casting director. The casting director then went back to him, allegedly. And it was said, allegedly, that he told her to be quiet or he'd ruin her too, right? 
I think that there are a lot of people that should have said something a lot sooner. Um, and it's disappointing to see that they, they are aware that these people exist because, you know, we're dealing with this particular casting director where we're finding out that there was an office that he originally worked at where he was fired from for this behavior. But that particular business owner didn't do what I felt like should be done, which is tell everyone so that he's not employed anymore and he has to find an alternative way to do what he's doing. Um, so for me, you know, these enablers are the problems as well. You know, especially like that agent that called and said, well, he's my friend for 20 years and he can do this. He can do that. He can blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you're part of the problem too. You know, those are the people. It's not about just getting that one guy or girl. You've got to get the whole team. That's the way I look at it because it, it, it takes a village in order for this to happen. And I think you guys are seeing that with the Weinstein case, with the Cosby case, you know, and all these other cases that are coming out. They're not just isolated incidents. They never are. Well, and I think that is the nice thing about living in the world we do now where everything can be immediately seen and heard by everyone is it's like you, you never hear about it until one person makes it really known and then you hear, you know, 30 more people and it's unfortunate there, there are 30 more people, but so many of them probably have this, like, well, I was the only one and no one's going to believe me because no one else will say anything. Yeah. That's where we're at now. That's why I was the first agent to say, you know what, I'm going to support this woman because I believe it. I looked at his patterns and the way he was putting out breakdowns all willy nilly in the middle of the night. That's not normal behavior. You know, and then I had dinner with a client last week and he reminded me of an experience that we had had with him back in 2015 that involved drugs, <laughs> you know, so, you know, stand for something or stand for nothing at all. You know, I think about that poster, which I'm going to butcher completely, but I think we all saw it in freshman English class. It was like, you know, when they came for the so-and-sos, I didn't speak up because I wasn't a so-and-so. Right. And then when they came for me, there was no one left to speak. Yeah. That's not how I'm going out. You know, I've, I get it. I, I saw the movie. She hate me. Everyone hates the whistleblower. Right. But someone had to say, Hey, this is wrong. And this is what's going, this is what's going on so that other people can be aware. And then from there, if someone feels inclined to do something about it, whether it's legally or from a business perspective, then at least now we know. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I also don't remember the quote fully, but I know exactly the quote you're talking about where it's like, they came for the socialists and I wasn't a socialist, so I didn't say anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is like the classic, if you don't stand for something, like you'll fall for anything. And eventually somebody is going to hold all of the control in your life and you won't know how to get out because you don't have a way out. Yeah. Like if we just, you know, stand up and back each other up in things that are not just like, legally correct but morally correct mm -hmm. like we'll get a lot further you know if we all put a little energy into caring about other people as people you know rather than just like isolate yourself and only take care of yourself like it might get you somewhere but it's also going to you know harm a lot of people along the way even if it's not your intent Yep, times they are changing. We're going to be chattel here by the end of the year, I'm pretty certain. Yeah. So the other thing I was going to bring up, and I'm not saying I agree with it at all, but in trying to like research before this interview and like, okay, what can I look up on agents and what can I look up on? Because I knew we were going to be talking about diversity. Um, there is a lot of people who have been just like generally upset that there is 
and I don't know how they put it, but like a diversity minimum. Yeah, they're not happy. Is that a thing? Like, oh, it's absolutely a thing. It is 100% a thing. The people who benefited from that system are now upset that one or two slots are now going to a person of color. It's upset their entire day somehow. And is it just like, like, what is the rule? I, I don't know hardly anything about any of this. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. The It's kind of like that uh, racism in reverse thing. That was kind of the first thing that people did when we started saying, hey, let's balance things out, right? We use Los Angeles, for example. It's not as much of a melting pot as New York is, but it's pretty darn diverse, right? Sure. But then you walk into a movie set and you don't see anyone who looks like you in most cases, unless you're Caucasian. And so it can be demoralizing to one, come off the street and you were out there with anything and everything as a Los Angelian and then come into this environment where there's no one that looks like you. The hair and makeup person doesn't know how to do your hair because it's curly. You know, so it, it goes deeper than just not even just, you know, being able to provide for yourself, pay your mortgage, pay for your health insurance, have a car, have power, have water, right? Basic things that you need plus clothing and teeth, right? Because you got to take care of those. Um, it goes into a culture of comfort um, and acceptance. And that's why it changed from like diversity and um, equity to also inclusion, because people were still feeling a certain type of way, you know, even when they had a job on a show, they're just like, you know, there was a shakeup a lot on the rookie with one of the black actresses there because apparently hair was making weird comments about her hair and her hair is a short little pixie. So I don't really know what their problem was and they can put wigs on. Like most of these black actresses wear wigs anyway, because the amount of heat that they have to put on a hair on hair to straighten it and, and do the things that they do can damage the hair and destroy the hair. Um, you know, there's a Jennifer Goodwin, she has a, it's been said that she has a wigs clause in her contract because something happened in her youth where her hair was kind of permanently damaged. So that's why her hair is short because it, it doesn't quite grow the way it's supposed to based on probably a bad salon experience. It could have been over dying, who knows? Um, and so again, we, when we have people that are not well cultured, we get those types of alienating practices behind the scenes, you know, and this is an actor who's supposed to perform and bring this show to life. And every day they have to come in and have this awful experience with the people who make them look beautiful before they had to work on set. So it's really about just everybody performing their jobs. Um, if you're skilled, you should not have a problem finding employment. What I found is a lot of these people that are griping about diversity are the folks that are the, the nepotisms, those frat brothers, right? Yeah. Those right. brother-in-laws. Um, you know, when I, I went to UCLA for producing and we had a night where a showrunner came in and we asked him, I said, you know, what do you look for um, a writer that you're putting in the writer's room? And he was brutally honest with us. And he was just like, I only employ about two bona fide straight up and down writers. He's like, I have to employ a woman because the studio makes me. <laughs> God, <laughs> because the studio makes me. And then I had to hire my brother-in-law because my sister would never get out of my ear if I didn't. And then I'd hire another guy who was my frat brother where his whole job was just to crack jokes all day and make me laugh. 
And I mean, if you could have seen, if you could have just turned around and looked at our room, I'm pretty certain our jaws were on the floor because we've been taught our entire lives, writing is writing and writing. You gotta be a great writer. You gotta do this, you gotta do that. And it turns out really all you needed to do was be family. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like I got hired because my last name's the same as the name on the guy who produced it. Yeah, so when you're saying a little bit of nepo- nepotism, no, it's like 99% of the industry is nepotism. And even if it's not familial, it's struggle. Meaning if you guys were all on your grind together back in 98 and you started to climb, you're going to pull in those people that were in these streets grinding with you. Sure. Yeah, and to some level, it's like, you know, if these are the people you trust and you all worked really hard at the same time to get here, I can I can understand where you're coming from as long as they are you know, good at their job and they're doing the same work everyone else is because you can't just be like, oh, well, I struggled with you to get here and now I don't have to struggle anymore. It's like, no, man, we're all working. You have to struggle the same way you did then. We're just trying to get better. Yeah, not everybody has that approach. So (laughs) I ran into a very interesting argument where I saw someone employ a quote that I have generally enjoyed um, in a way that I struggled to, to comprehend how they were using it because they said there's a difference between the equality of outcome and the equality of opportunity. And they were using it to say like, and that's why there shouldn't be diversity requirements. And I'm like, well, this is the, like the particular purpose where it doesn't work. <laughs> like if you don't, especially in this industry, like you only get your experience by getting in the door. So if you're like, oh yeah, well, I put a a hard 10 year limit. Like you have to have 10 years in this industry. Um, and after that, I hit, I hit my you know requirements as long as you hit 10 years. It's like, well, no one hit 10 years. So you still get to employ the exact same people you were hiring before because no one else qualified. Yeah, that was my issue that we encountered when we started trying to get the writers that were that were brand new to the industry um, opportunities inside of some of these studios and networks. They were coming back and saying, well, we need somebody who's a story editor who's of color. And they're like, we're having trouble finding any. And I said, well, you're not going to find any because you never let anyone in to begin with. So someone never got to work for five years as a staff writer inside of the writer's room to even get moved up to story editor. So, you know, at what point are we going to acknowledge that we're going to have to invest one or two years into developing these candidates so that they become the mid-level managers and then the senior level managers that you're looking for on these shows? Yeah, it is very like, unless you are going into everything, like it's easier with a writer, at least to some extent, or even an editor where it's like, I can look at your work completely blindly, right? Like you could submit 10 people's works. And I can go through them and pick the ones that I like the best. And that keeps it at least a little fair, you know, and everyone has the same opportunity to get in. Um, But yeah, it's a lot different when you're like, you're walking into a casting director's office and they like give you that glance and then they just like shake their head and like cross a name off a list and then just go, okay, go ahead, do whatever it is you're here to do. Like that's not the same. Yeah. It's not the same opportunity. Yeah. And I mean, that's a challenging and tricky one because, you know, the casting saw their face before they brought them in, right? The headshot is what got them into the room, into that audition to begin with, before we switched to kind of self-tapes with the pandemic. 
Sure. Right. And so casting would talk about how you know, as soon as a person walked into the room, they could kind of tell because it's, a, it's that energy and it's the way you present yourself and it's whether or not you command that room. It's whether or not you continue to be the interesting person that they saw in that headshot. And that's where a lot of actors go wrong is that when you come in that room, you've got to be on, you know, you've got to be coming in congenial and then coming in and then knocking it out of the park. Most don't do that. And that's where they find they're not going to go out. You know, I had that with a client. He was getting auditions a couple of times a week with all the commercial casting directors. And then after about two weeks, he had made his rounds and the audition stopped. He wasn't doing what he needed to do in the room. And so casting became familiar with him. And they're like, oh, I remember him. There's nothing there. I'm not going to call him in. I tried to counsel him about it, but he wouldn't come to the meeting. Yeah. And, you know, too little, too late. You kind of write your own ticket on that one. Yeah. All right. So the, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about um, was this, you know, and forgive me for not remembering the, the full title. I will remember it when I do the editing because I get to listen to it as much as I want. Um, but you had said, you know, you're the first chairperson uh, mm-hmm. in this position. Uh, can you talk about what it is and what it means and just kind of yeah. give us a rundown? So I'm on the board of directors of the Association of Talent Agents, which is a professional trade organization for talent agencies. And so part of what we do, obviously, as any board would, is, you know, oversee how that organization runs and deal with certain issues. Um, Obviously, with diversity being at the forefront, it makes sense that I would have been elected to the board because they didn't really have any other Black women who ran. (laughs) So we'll start with that. (laughs) There aren't that many Black people who own their own agencies and definitely not that many Black women at that. Um, So, you know, it's like I tell people all the time, it's it's double-edged, right? It's dope for my bio. You know, all these firsts that I have, like that's the third or fourth first that I've made in the eight years I've had this agency. Like that's just new. Um, I've, there's so many records that I've broken just by existing. Um, but it's also sad that, you know, this was happening in 2022, right? That some of these, these things that I was breaking started in 2014 and then 2017 and then 2019 and then 2021, 2022, you know, it's just like, okay, cool, I'm the first, but then, wow, really? It's hard. You're coming into a place that, let's be honest, microaggressions exist. They're barely tolerable of you. Most don't even say hello. Um, Yet I do work that allows their agencies to still exist, even though they created this system and essentially the problem that we've been having. No one in entertainment is absolved from this. It doesn't matter if you're a casting director, a producer, an agent, a manager, a writer, an executive, everyone contributed to why we had a lack of diversity. And now, instead of righting the wrongs, they're just throwing a Band-Aid on it, really, and just saying, okay, fine, give me this Middle Eastern guy. And they're not fixing what we now, we love using the word toxic, right? So you're not fixing this toxic work culture in an environment you're just throwing a bunch of people in there and there are some people who are adverse to that change. Um, There was an issue we had last summer. Um, A white agent told a black agent who now became a manager that he was acting like the crackhead from Menace to Society because he simply asked for a DVD copy of a movie that an actress was in because the black manager wanted to hire her on the next project he was producing. 
him and that agent, it seems, had, you know, a 10, 20 year history. So they were exchanging text messages per usual. But for whatever, this agent decided to not only say what he said, go the step further and go on YouTube and find the clip. The clip is the infamous clip of this guy running around with like this day old hamburger trying to exchange it for either sexual favors or drugs. It was not a good look. <laughs> it resulted in that agent being terminated from an agency that they're at, which is huge, one of the big four agencies that we have. But it also showed that we still have that culture existing inside of those workplaces. If you don't address that culture, you can diversify it all you want. You're still going to have those problems. So that's been the sobering truth of it is, is, yeah, we can hire all the Blacks and Latinos and Asians that we want, but what is it like for them when they're inside of that workplace? I've had people tell me, I had an intern who was from Harvard who worked at one of those bigger agencies as an intern and she was Asian. And she told me that thankfully on her first day, her community swooped her up and gave her a lay of the land and protected her. Not everybody has that level of community when they go into the workplace, especially if you're black. We don't look out for each other at all. <laughs> so you're on your own. <laughs> so I know of some producers who have now gone on to be Emmy winners who started off inside of those agencies. And they were like, yeah, it was terrible. We had to make sure we always wore a skirt. We had to make sure our hair was always straight. We had to make sure that we didn't sound ethnic. You know, there are so many concessions that people of color have, have made just to go into a workplace. That's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate to be told that the hair that just grows out of your head naturally is unprofessional. We're not talking about, you know, wild hairstyles. We're talking about someone like me, where when I first did my big chop, all I had was like a two inch little afro. I wasn't, I didn't have a mohawk, didn't have anything that should be distracting anyone. And I was harassed for three days straight at my job. Wow. People are weird that, you know, like that's just the best way to describe it. There are people that for whatever reason are so bothered by your existence that sometimes they act out on it. Yeah. Well, uh, with all that said, if there was somebody listening who had, had given that thought, like, I want to become an agent, would you recommend people joining the field? I do. Um, so going back to what we didn't, what I didn't talk about in my tangent was the shortage of agents, like, right. Remember we talked about how we had 3000 submissions in 2014. Now we're getting about 5,000 and in some instances, if it's a pilot, it's 8,000 submissions. You know, I tell actors, writers, producers all the time, there is one of me, but there are hundreds of thousands of you, you know, and an agent can only service X amount of people. You know, we can't take on all a hundred thousand of you. We might be able to take on 20. We might be able to take on 200 as a collective. And so we do need more people in the profession and it can be a very rewarding profession. Okay. It can be a very challenging profession. You are dealing with artists after all, you know, you're dealing with people and people are variables, but at the same time, it is really cool to know, oh man, my client's going to be in this project that's coming out. You know, I put clients on TV shows and good TV shows like Sneaky Pete, you know, and stuff like that. So Westworld. So it's been great of like, that's us. We beat out 7,000 other people for this job. That's cool. Yeah. That's a great, you know, you get to really like cheer the success and I'm sure it helps you like enjoy the show even beyond that, because now you have some level of like skin in the game and you're like, yeah, I got them in that show. Yeah. Especially commercials are fun too. One of my clients was in a Cadillac commercial directed by the Russo. So I'm sitting there and there she is. There's Wendy just being the badass that she is walking away while there's an explosion, you know, and I'm just like, this is awesome. 
Nice. So how does somebody, how would somebody get into that? Like, what is the path you would tell people to follow to, Mm -hmm. to start their career? You know, one of the easiest ways really is an internship. It's a great way to kind of see what it's like, you know, go through the day to day and get your college credit at the same time. I would recommend that to start. Awesome. All right. Well, there's good advice to end on. Um, I'd like to give you know a little time to you to just kind of, you know, share where people can find you or the things you're working on or anything you want to plug. Yeah. So what we have is the Jackson Agency Initiative, which is designed to create entry-level pathways for writers and directors in entertainment. So we have that form on the website, which is thejacksonagency.com. Um, social media, uh, we just have a Jackson Agency on Instagram and um, I think a Facebook page, but that's you know about it. Um, other than that, me as a human being, just being you know out here fighting for everything that just makes sense to me, um, then I'm more outspoken on my personal pages. So, Awesome. Thank you. Well, I have appreciated this immensely and thank you so much for your time and just coming on to share all of this. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. If you want to help the show grow, rate it five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. Especially, if nothing else, share this show with someone that you know or someone you think might enjoy it. That is the easiest way to help the show grow. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, or questions from the audience. To reach out to me, email me at dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or send a message to any of the show's pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else. I'd also like to mention I'm still a featured podcast on the Podbean app, which is awesome. Check out their service if you're just making changes. You know, you want to find a new app that helps you listen to podcasts better, or is a little more focused, or lets you download things and listen without ads. It's also a great platform if you want to start your own podcast like what I've got going on here. That's who I use, and it is incredibly reasonable compared to a lot of other services. Here's a quick ad about all that, and uh, helps keep the lights on, so to speak. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Head on over to Podbean at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out! Lastly, we've got the new top countries for July, as we are in a new month. Number one, the United States down all the way to 40%, which just means our international audience is growing so fast and so large that the U.S. is actually having a hard time keeping up. So, the new top states, Alabama and Minnesota. Number two, the United Kingdom holding down that second place spot very tightly. Number three, Canada with a new top province of British Columbia. Number four, Australia with a new top state, New South Wales. And number five, South Africa, dethroning New Zealand and returning to the top five. I think that does it for this week. 
I will see you all in the next episode, which may be sooner than you think. Bye-bye. Thank you.